Hello and welcome once again, and it is once again, to the sitcom club. Where the hell have we been? I think that's actually a catchphrase now. Every time we start a new sitcom club, it's always, my goodness, it's been a long time, hasn't it? We've had a year between shows. Was there a year before that as well? Probably. We're not podcasting machines. Life has been stressful in ways, on top of the ways that life is stressful for all of us now. And I don't doubt you've all got your own troubles. But yes, things have been getting in the way of our podcasting plans. And hey, you know, do you want it good or do you want it Tuesday? Well, we've decided to take the time it takes to watch things properly, think about things properly. And as promised quite some time ago, in fact, I think this show was still being broadcast at the time we promised to talk about it. Today's show is about lame ducks. It is about lame ducks. And I reckon that a good sizable chunk of our listeners are saying right now, what the hell's lame ducks? So in a nutshell, Till, what is lame ducks? I'd be curious to know more. For the very first time, I'd be curious to know more about the demographics of our listenership. But I imagine that of that percentage who are saying, what the hell's lame ducks? There's a percentage within that percentage who are saying, what was that sitcom where the guy was like a pyromaniac and there was another guy who was wearing like pressed denim and and there was all kinds of weird people. Yeah, this is that one. Yeah, remember the show about the pyromaniac and chums? This is the show, Lame Ducks, by PJ Hammond, who is not famed for his uh, sitcom writing. He's famed for his uh, science fiction and fantasy writing. I would presume that a good chunk of our audience as well have actually been enjoying the work of PJ Hammond quite recently. Because if there was a Venn diagram of listeners to our podcasts and viewers of Forces TV, I think that there'd be an enormous big sort of ATV style bit in the middle there. People who are watching Forces TV may well have seen Sapphire on Steel in the past few months. So here we are watching a sitcom written by a man not famed for sitcoms, but a famous TV writer. Let's get this out of the way. I think we actually disagree on the qualities of this show. Well, yeah, you say that, and you'd be right. Because if it wasn't for the fact that we were doing this cast, I don't know if I necessarily would have stuck with Lame Ducks throughout the whole 12 episodes as a viewer. I did allude to it earlier on. I said, how are we in possession of this? And the fact of the matter is that through means, and I don't know what they are, but somehow copies of this show ended up on the internet. I spotted this thing by accident and said, to tell, look at this, lame ducks. Do you have any recollection of this? It's a bloke called John Tutteen, whose name I don't recognise. It's by a writer I don't recognise. But I recognise lots of other names associated with the show. Most of all, Brian Murphy and Lorraine Chase and Tony Milan. Our interest was peaked. When we got into it, it was a real slow burn. I can't honestly say that I would have been driven to see each and every episode But by the time that we got on course, I thought, right, we're going to stick with it. This is a BBC Two show, which has actually had an airing on BBC One a couple of years later. See, I remember watching it at the time on BBC One. I don't remember its BBC Two run. BBC Two shows getting a repeat run on BBC One. How often did that really happen? It had a repeat in the summer of 86. Summertime schedules on BBC One, I guess that they have a little bit more elbow room to be perhaps a bit more experimental. So that was just part of me wondering if maybe because this got excellent ratings, but look at the appreciation index, maybe this is worth taking into the big boys tent. So yeah, I'm a little bit more sort of, 
skeptical about it, but I think that you really enjoyed this still. I did. And one of the things I enjoyed about it is probably something I'm not going to be able to talk about. Why is that then? Because I can't identify it. Oh, damn. I thought you were going to confess to being a pyromaniac and you suddenly found (laughs) found inner peace. There's a lot of media studies out there. I don't mean that as a pejorative term. I mean, that's what we're doing right now. What a lot of podcasts. Everybody has a podcast. (laughs) I'm just like taking it and measuring it and saying these are the tropes and this is how it worked. And I think that this mindset has resulted in recent years in a form of television in which it is encoded and decoded. Everybody explaining the show to each other, every single viewer seems to think that they are viewer prime who has to explain it to the other viewers. And in some sense, some television is written with that in mind. All the clues, all the Easter eggs, all the what's going to happen next. Well, we've had a look at certain things happening in the background and we're saying that this is going to happen next, blah, 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 blah. Have you been listening to that Shaun of the Dead commentary track again? I have never listened to that commentary track and my wife has told me not to. Whereas I think in the good old days, and I suppose we're talking about a time when people writing for television, and this is something we mention maybe every time we come on here, we talk about people like Roy Clark, former school teacher, former policeman, There is a period when every man of a certain age has had to have a spell in the army. People have done things outside of the media before they've become part of the media. They might have been writing all their lives, but they have other experiences to draw upon. And I think something like this, some of it is written... I mean, I'm not making up PJ Hammond as some sort of outsider artist following a muse he doesn't really know. PJ Hammond will know how to structure a script. He'll know how to tell a story he'll, you know he'll have a story in his mind he will know how to tell that story he will know how to get the results he wants and yet i think there was a lot of just this other factor there was some writing by instinct there are things happening here that i can't identify but i can feel this is getting highly mystical okay well let's i mean i've been to an academic conference once was... about widescreen cinema was that the one where um, an mp glared at you no that was a tribute screening right That was something different in which somebody will sort of say, look, this is the mise-en-scene of this shot. Here is the shot composition. Here is the positioning of the characters. The positioning of the characters makes us feel this way. Now, what they're not saying, or at least I don't think they were saying, is that's what this is all about. You're meant to sit there and understand that because he's slightly off to the left, but there's a great deal of negative space around him that he is isolated and that the other characters are close together, which you're not meant to sit there thinking that, but a clever director can do that in the knowledge that you will feel that. Does that make sense? It does. It's one of the reasons that I don't mind a good biopic and you say you don't see the point of them. If you've got a good documentary, why do you need a biopic? Well, a biopic done right puts you in the room when that moment happens. You can say, yeah, Freddy, Freddy, Freddy had an argument with the head of Pimple Television because he wanted his show to be in colour because, that's after all, it was 1992 and they had a big argument and swore never to work with each other ever again. It's entirely different to portray that so you can feel. What was that argument like? How gentlemanly was the disagreement? Were voices raised or was it an icy cold sort of thing what did it feel like when that moment that affected the careers of both men 
happened. So there's just something going on in Lame Ducks that's very nebulous. Okay, um, well, I'm acutely aware. And I really respond to that. I think we need to bring on board some expert input. I'm very, very pleased to say that Steve O'Brien, who is not just writer for SFX Magazine, uh, Sci-Fi Now, Total Film, Empires, a regular contributor to Doctor Who Magazine, but also he has written extensively about Sapphire and Steel, as in PJ Hammond's Sapphire and Steel. So, Steve, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the Sitcom Club today. That's okay, my pleasure. So, the first thing we've got to ask is, do you have any particular inkling about how PJ Hammond, with his body of work, like we said previously, he's been the writer on Sapphire and Steel, which has been going up to about, I think, 79 foot to about 82. He's somebody who's principally associated, I suppose, with drama and perhaps with science fiction. How on earth did PJ Hammond come to write Free Walls and an Audience Situation Comedy for BBC? It is bizarre. And he's got an extensive IMDb page and, uh, you know, plenty of credits. But as far as I can understand, only two series were created by him. And that's the first one is Saffron Steel, obviously. And the second one is Lame Duck. Sort of outside of that, before and after, he's just a sort of jobbing TV writer. You know, just he's somebody you, who you hire to write a couple of episodes of your uh, series that you have a collection of writers for. It's odd that, um, first of all, that he didn't create and showrun kind of more series. And two, especially that this Lame Ducks kind of sits in his CV rather kind of you know, like a sore thumb. It's a strange one. Right up until this point, he had been writing episodes of The Gentle Touch. And uh, when you say there about him being a sort of jobbing writer, I guess he'd be the kind of person who you see his name attached to individual episodes of various series. I think he also wrote for Zed Cars and for Angels as well. Yeah, plenty of Zed Cars. About half his CV is kind of stuff that's so obscure, not even Network DVD has has released it. (laughs) You know, yeah, there's some baffling ones on there. But he seems to have been a a favourite of the Angels uh, producers. The Gentle Touch. Yeah, he did a fair few danger fields. As far as I can see, Lame Ducks is his only sitcom. I have to ask, given the nature of Lame Ducks, did he go through a really bad divorce or something just before this? Because it's got a very sour view. Yeah, I was because I, I hadn't seen Lame Ducks. Well, I think I might have caught it at the time. And I, you kindly sent over the two series, but I must admit, man, I could only get through about an episode and a half. It was hard work. And I was kind of looking for some kind of thematic connection between that and Saffron Steel, but I couldn't find it apart from the fact that I just thought, yeah, absolutely. He just seemed to be in a possibly a sort of a dark place when he wrote it. So did his previous work where he is writer for that particular week, would you say that his writing had a particular style? Could you look at an episode of, say, Zed Cars, for example, if you didn't know that it was one that Peter Hammond had written and say, ah, yes, I can see this is one of his episodes? Oh, God, I haven't seen enough of his, you know, regular stuff. He seemed to be a favourite on Ace of Wands. Uh, and I think, actually, his best work seems to be in that sci-fi sort of fantasy genre. He, he obviously was uh, popular with Paula Lonsdale, who produced Ace of Wands, and then who asked him to pitch for uh, Saffron Steel. So, obviously, she thought a lot of him. And it's just a shame that he didn't play in that sort of sci-fi playground more. You know, I understand that there was an approach from Doctor Who. He did He did a story which was liked by the script editor, not liked by the producer, and it was never made. It was eventually made as a big Finnish audio play. So, I mean, is he particularly somebody for whom humour is a recurring thing in his work? Putting aside Sapphire and Steel, which isn't a chuckle fest. I'm just thinking that that whole 
jobbing writer thing was something that Roy Clark did in the 60s, and he was writing for dramas like Mr. Rose and Spider's Web, but watching them, you can still tell this is the guy who's going to write Open All Hours and Last of the Summer White. Is PJ Hammond noted for his sense of humour in his work? Well, if you actually kind of look at the series that he's doing, they're not series that, that usually have a kind of a light edge to them. I mean, within these walls, obviously, kind of, you know, an intense prison drama, The Professionals, The Sweeney, New Scotland Yard, Dixon and Doc Green. Uh, you know, uh, I don't think that there was a sitcom. I, I never got the sense in which there was a sitcom writer bursting to get out here. You know, and, and Lame Ducks is an odd one in the sense that if it was, if that, if that script had been put in front of a, of a commissioner now, I think you would think of that as a sort of dark single camera, no studio audience series. But unfortunately, it's because it was made in 1984, I think, isn't it? It's, it's obviously a kind of a multi camera studio audience thing. And it's not really written to be that. And I think that's his, that's, that's his natural sort of bent that he doesn't kind of write to that in that, in that genre very easily. I think he's essentially a, a drama writer. So just looking at his CV, I'm noticing. Again, sort of twists and turns because I just noticed here that he's actually credited as script editor on over 180 episodes of Z Cars. And like you say, I mean, he's, he's associated with episodes of Ace of Wands, but mainly looking at his body of work in the 70s, you've got shows such as Dixon of Dot Green popping up, you've got Armchair Theatre, you've got Dial M for Murder, you've got The Sweeney and Professionals, and also within these walls that you mentioned, Angels. So how then does somebody who's got quite strong connections with a lot of these sort of gritty dramas suddenly then come to be creating and writing something as different as Sapphire and Steel? Do you know, I, well, I think that the first fantasy or sci-fi series that he fell into was Ace of Wands, which was fairly sort of grounded. And it was obviously his, his work on that that alerted him to, to Pamela Lonsdale. Who was obviously, who I, I think, I believe was was looking for a sci-fi uh, series for a, the the five thirty children's slot. But what he gave her was so much unlike, and uh, so much more conceptually daring than Ace of Wands, and much less sort of grounded than Ace of Wands. And it's yeah, it's, it sits apart from anything else on his CV. Rather actually, rather rather like Lame Duck. It's 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 uh, yes, it's unlike anything else on his CV, and it's um unlike anything else on television, really. So if I've just seen Lame Ducks, for example, and I've noticed this name PJ Hammond and I look into his past work and I think, well, I enjoyed Lame Ducks. Oh, he's done this thing, Sapphire and Steel. Oh, like there's Joanna Lumley from all those shows. If I've never, ever seen Sapphire and Steel before, what, what am I in for? What, what, what can I expect from episode one, for example? From episode one, actually, is is fairly untypical of the series. It was originally conceived uh, as a, as a children's series, uh, and that it was only through I think towards writing that first story that he was told, no, 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 actually, you're not getting the five thirty slot. This is going out later. So it was reconceived after that. But the, the, its origins as a kids show are kind of obvious in that first episode. It's essentially about two two characters who are sent in by a sort of organization that we don't really know about to solve problems of time uh, and this is a series in which there's no usual antagonist there's no monster or no traditional villain time is the sort of big bad of the, of, of these stories it's a very elliptical show it's a very sort of opaque show these two characters we never find out really who they are they are 
elements, we're told. But when you think back to the beginning of Doctor Who, even then, when we didn't know much about the character, we knew he was an alien, we knew he was 450 years old, etc. These are characters we don't know if they were once human, we don't know if they're alien. Even calling, even saying that sounds a bit reductive. Uh, they, they are just sort of time investigators. And as a series itself, there were 34 episodes made. PJ Hammond wrote all but six of them, those six that he didn't write was simply simply because he was creatively shagged out. And it's a, it's a series that's clearly made on a threadbare budget. It's it's almost entirely studio bound. To modernise it would look incredibly stagey, uh, but it makes a virtue of that claustrophobia. Uh, it's it's a, it's one of the eeriest, strangest, scariest shows I think kind of that's ever been on ITV. And what's amazing about it, it was like it, that it was screened. Where Emmerdale screens now, this this very very odd surreal kind of enigmatic elliptical show. It's absolutely bizarre. I'm I'm always quite fascinated by instances like that where you you get used to how a schedule normally looks and you sort of expect to see certain things there, and then when something like that is, it's almost like it's in the wrong place. You know what our favourite one is, don't you, Gary? Well, I know what's yeah, I know. Is it what enemy at the door? Saturday oh, night, well, no, 7 no, you... p.m., people on the occupied Channel Islands suffering and dying in the X Factor slot. <laughs> <laughs> the past is a different country. That actually wasn't the one I was going to mention. The one I was going to mention, because there's a sci-fi tie-in with it, in a previous edition of the cast, we talked about Nigel Neal's Kinvig. When was that? Oh, that was an ITV show, wasn't it? It was. That was ITV, and it was Autumn of 81, and that was going out at half past eight in the evening on a Friday night. That's bizarre because it feels more like a Channel Four BBC Two show, doesn't it? It's mm. not an easy, easy ITV sitcom, you know. And it's London weekend with you know their big show busy lighting and their famous uh, studios with the wonderful sound of laughter. They actually keep some of that laughter. Even now, there are files of the laughter because it bounces off the wall so perfectly. <laughs> well, do you know what? I think that was that was another show that, like Lame Ducks, if it had been done in a different era and had been done on film, I think it might have uh, uh, it might have worked better. But you know that that sort of multi-camera studio audience thing, I don't think quite quite right for that worked for that. But then, but then he was another writer that you know working in a medium that that he was unused to. So yeah, you know the the, the two uh, uh, P.J. Hammond and Nigel Neal have similarities there. Just just before we leave the, the topic of Sapphire and Steel, I'm just wondering, even though the way you describe it, it sounds like it's it's not necessarily the kind of thing that you'd expect to see on ITV outside of perhaps like the, the children's slot where you would have had Ace of Wands. But looking at it, I mean, you've got, is it four series that you've got? Altogether, and am I right in thinking? It's confusing how they did the series because there are some series in which it's just it's just one one story. A couple of one another series can be two stories. So I, I find it easier just to say it lasted for three years and there were six six stories. And I think that final story I, I think was recorded because it was just it was just when uh, ATV was ch- was changing into central, and I think it sort of sat on the shelf for a while. But uh, yeah, thirty four episodes, six six stories. That was the thing I was going to mention there, is that it sounds like it's something that's been caught up in ITV politics. Yes, uh, yeah, and he, you know, he 
he was quite he's been quite honest about sort of saying that uh, he never intended it to to end where it did he would have wanted to do more but um yeah sort of the, the politics of central taking over from ATVs i think sort of scuppered sapphire steel's chances of coming back so effectively we can't actually track lame ducks as part of his creative arc it just sticks out right it sticks out, but then Saffron still kind of. But I mean, although there's a slight sort of a follow-on from from Ace of Wands, it still sticks out. You know, g- given that uh, his lot, his previous credit to Saffron still was Hazel, uh, and then before that, Target. You know, and uh, you know that's all kind of gritty Houston films kind of, you know, punchiness. You know, where Saffron still is kind of very theatrical. It's more like J.B. Priestley than um, you know than Edge of Darkness or anything. Yeah, it's uh, his, his CV is is just baffling. It's it sort of there's there's no kind of real through line. But I think that's the CV of a of a jobbing writer, you know, who bafflingly was never given was never treated like a Dennis Potter, you know, or even like a Robert Holmes, you know, who, who was like a jobbing writer who was sort of really revered within the industry. But you know, he should have been given way more opportunities to create and show run his own series. So what was your own impression, Steve, of Lame Ducks when you saw it? Because you, as you said, you'd just, you'd just seen it in preparation for our discussion today for the first time. It was odd. I thought that the um, the central conceit of the series wasn't really clear in that first episode. Because it, obviously the setup is very good life-like. But kind of when you compare the two stories and how kind of Tom's decision to, to change his life is so clear and it's so explained. I, I couldn't help feeling that, that this kind of fudged it a little bit. And just bam, 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 on a basic level, the jokes just don't work. And it's it's kind of hampered, I think, a little bit by John Tatine's rather sort of limp performance. You know, I'm, I'm sure that the character's you know, meant to be like that. And maybe he develops a spine as, as, as the episodes go on. But but one thing I was struck about, actually, is how is, it's the second series of the 80s that starts with John Tatine in, waking, up in a children, in a, sorry, waking up in a hospital bed. Because the only other thing I really know him from is uh, is the is Day of the Triffids, and um, that was a fa- very famous first scene, of course. So it's, yeah, I don't know if that's his speciality as an actor is waking up in hospital bed. <laughs> well, again, it was something that that threw me at first. It was I can't place this chap because I don't I don't really do drama. You know, Tilt is the, the go to drama guy on the cast. So I, 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 I when I saw this, I think okay, well not a name I recognise and looking at John Dutton's CV as well it looked like he was again also mainly a a drama guy so that was throwing me a little bit and I I kept on sort of thinking to myself what's what's the process here what's the commissioning process at some point you're sort of expecting to see you know hints of okay well the department has commissioned this had previously made this or that or so on and then later on as the series progresses you start to get names such as Lorraine Chase and Brian Murphy, who are more associated with I think that's one thing we can maybe compare then against some of his other work. It's very much a serial rather than just one and done half hours in a row. Which actually kind of, yeah, sets it apart from, you know, virtually most sitcoms of that that era, really, which were to sort of, you know, very, very episodic, aren't they? I know that you've written a good deal, Steve, about... Doctor Who, and I believe that PJ Hammond also wrote a couple of episodes of Torchwood. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, again, I think that was pop, pop, I think that was his first and only kind of a sci-fi work, you know, since then. And that that's clearly, you know, 
people like Chris Chibnall and Russell T Davis kind of like her having grown up with Sapphire and Steel and saying, you know, this guy needs to be needs to be writing really good sci-fi instead of just the bill, you know, a sort of that sort of landfill drama that 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 he was kind of writing at the time. Uh, and yes, I haven't seen them for a while, but they they are among the be- the, the better episodes uh, of the series and and have that sort of slightly poetic quality that kind of Sapphire still has. I'm just wondering. Okay, and my mind's my mind's going haywire here, but I'm spotting that that he's written nine episodes of Midsummer Murders. Now, till okay, if we were to jump forward in the the, the lame duck storyline, some sort of twenty years or so to where all the characters land, there's definitely scope for a good Midsummer there, isn't it? <laughs> well, everybody should kill Tony Milan's character because he's. Just... <laughs> Just so I haven't got to Tony Milan's character yet. It is. Uh, um, I I normally like Tony Milan actually. So you know, it's just that his character ends up as a bit of a fifth wheel in some of the episodes. Uh, it's it's a great performance as usual, but I think a stricter editor would have probably said we don't actually need him. But it, one of the things I like about this show is that it isn't bound by the usual rules and processes it is just sort of very free-flowing it, it almost feels like it was started without much of an idea of where it was going to end in six episodes time and i enjoy that it's an unusual structure as well the fact that you you start off with your your two characters you have some ancillary characters who eventually sort of disappear as the 12 episodes go on then you don't actually have for example brian murphy until i think episode three and you end up adding characters as the time goes on, whereas a lot of sitcoms tend to sort of just, poof, they just hit you right out of the box. It's like, right, here's our ensemble. You've been introduced to everybody, and this is the way it's going to be for the next six episodes, 13 episodes, whatever it may be. So well, I think that was, yeah, having kind of just watched the first you know, episode in a bit, I think it was that fact that it didn't really kind of set out what it, what it was about immediately. You know, most series would now, you'd know, you know, bam, by the end of episode one, you'd know the setup, you know, everybody would be introduced. But, uh, you know, I, I I literally had to look online to find out what the what the USP and premise of the series was, you know, because it wasn't in any hurry to do it to show me itself. We have found this once before, Gary, with Bootle Saddles, which was written by Paul Ben and Raymond Mansell, who had more of a background in drama. And even though Bootle Saddles lets you know very quickly what the setup is, anything that a lot of the major things that happen in one episode will have to pay off. There's no idea of the reset button being pushed at the end of every episode. Yeah, no, 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 that's that's, that's a fair point. Steve, do you have a particular favourite work of Peter Hammond? Uh, well, Sapphire and Steel, I think, is just the the one of the, the I mean the greatest series of all time. I think that you know the superlatives are, are worth it, and I I, I would have advise anybody to seek it out in fact it was it's beloved so much that it is one of those series that continually it comes up that you know itv are planning a remake or in fact actually neil cross is the mastermind behind luther tried to get a remake off the ground a few years ago uh but you know maybe now that that brand of the name doesn't because it doesn't mean quite so much but for but for people who grew up around that time who are now in the industry it's a sort of cherished piece of telly. Gary, if you want further watching of uh, PJ Hammond, I have to make you watch the Peacock Pie storyline in Ace of Wands because it has Brian Wilde looking straight in the camera going, I'm coming to get you. <laughs> <laughs> that was a public information <laughs> film. Just one final question, um, Steve, before you go. Do you have a particular favourite sci-fi 
sitcom at all. I know that ob- an obvious one is going to be something like Red Dwarf, but you've got a, a few to choose from in the the various annals of TV history. Come back, Mrs. Noah, <laughs> will get you a gold no. star, obviously. But yeah, yeah, we did do a we did on Less Effects. We did do a, a sci-fi sitcoms couch potato. Um, I can't think. I think we did Astronauts. Uh, Come back, Mrs. Noah. Red Dwarf, obviously. Hyperdrive. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you, you mentioned you mentioned astronauts. I've never seen Hyperdrive. I remember Hyperdrive being a thing. Uh, you've got no, you've got Kinvig. Oh dear me, Tilt. I'm I'm drawing I can't, a blank because my um, that side of the DVD collection is the door shut. I can't go over. That. Actually, okay, okay. I'll tell, I'll tell you what. Um, there's Code Four Hundred Four on Sky. Oh, which is kind of like a Randall and Hopkirk deceased kind of setup, which stars Stephen Graham and Daniel Mays, which is a very cinematically shot sitcom, um, which I, I had to review for SFX actually the other day. And I was really, really impressed by that and uh, thought it was great. And it comes from, I think it's Daniel Peake, who uh, used to work on Not Going Out and My Hero. So oh, I, I, that's one of my favorite current things. That, okay, I'll keep an eye out for that. And Steve, where can people find more of your work? You mentioned SFX. So where can people find out more about uh, your work that's out there on the internet and in print? I do various bits and bobs on the network DVD site. Um, I'm currently... I, I currently work a, quite a fair bit for, for Classic Pop magazine, Sci-Fi Now, uh, Digital Spy, that kind of thing. It's uh, you know I've been writing about the same kind of shit for 20 years and it's... um. I'm still writing about the stuff like Blake Seven and uh, Doctor Who. That's fab. Well, thank you very much indeed, Steve, for joining us today. I'm acutely aware that our audience cannot just fire up BritBox and see lame ducks, at least not at the present time, as far as we're aware. No, but they can say to BritBox, "Hey, BritBox, give us, give us more of the good stuff. Don't just give us what what we already know. Let us make new discoveries in the past. If you've never seen it before, it's new to you." And the reason that I might seem to be going sort of mystical and rather vague is it kind of is that, isn't it? There is this huge core of vagueness. Well, I think we ought to set the scene for the listeners because it's not a show that's easy to come by. What's the overall premise? We've got lots of faces that we recognise, but what's what's the gist? Who's our main guy in this show? Well, it starts with John Dettine. I mean, already. We're starting with a moment that... It sets the plot going, but you wouldn't know for the first couple of minutes what this show was going to be about. John Dettine, what's his first name? Mr. Drake, isn't it? What's Mr. Drake's first name? Uh, let's have a look. John Dettine plays a Mr. Drake. Brian. A typical, bland, suburban man of some sort of middle middling job. The kind of person that uh, George Harrison used to write screeds against. He's a piggy, you know, I suppose, in his own way. And then he is hit by a vehicle and his entire world is turned upside down. He loses his job. Okay, you know, people are saying Friends is really problematic. I think if this does hit BritBox, some people are going to go, blimey, what's, what are the issues with women here? Because Mrs. Drake is some kind of a monster. She's basically divorced him in absentia. He's been in hospital, recovering from his injuries. He's lost his job. She's started divorce proceedings, but she's going to take all of his money and she's taking the house and she's getting custody. And a little bit like the scenario in Dear John, there's the sense that 
the money's going to be extracted from him is actually going to be helping setting up the lifestyle of the new fella in her life. Uh, and this is why we're asking Steve earlier, did, did he go through a really bad divorce <laughs> around about this time? Brian is our main guy, but Brian is going to accumulate characters as we go on, which is an odd way for a sitcom to be structured. Like we said with Steve before, normally within the space of time that it's taken to establish Brian and who he is and what his circumstances are, and some sitcoms would have seen about maybe half a dozen characters by this point, but he is going to acquire these supporting characters as time and weeks go on. Well, it's really, what does this kind of say about Brian and all the Brians in the world at the time? I've got written down here, repression is a way of life. We've got a little bit of a rerun, I suppose, in some ways of the Reggie Perrin matter, except Brian's been fine as long as he's had a job to go to. And he's, he just turns up to his job and he draws his pay and presumably he goes home and kisses his wife and eats whatever is, you know, it's Thursday, it's shepherd's pie, blah, blah. And then as soon as that is interrupted by circumstance, it all just leaves him. And what sort of age? Brian, Brian's going to be more boomer than silent generation. Yeah, You know me, I love my generational dividing lines. I still can't remember which one I am. Am I Pepsi? Is that me? You're uh, Xennial, actually, because... <laughs> That's a sub-generation within Generation X, but... But nobody in 1977 had even heard of the word ending in ennial, or any words ending in ennial, had they? Apart from bicentennial. Um, yes, thank you. Yeah, right. Can, can you just let me explain this <laughs> sitcom and not make it all about you? Brian is is more rooted in a time from before that. He's rooted in that time. Job for life... And you will be a productive and good member of society. And his wife is more part of the me generation. What am I getting out of life? What am I getting out of this? And so Brian's been brought up to respect values that have vanished in a way. And so everybody's in it for themselves. Oh, hang on a minute. He hasn't really noticed that the world has changed. Hang on a minute. And all it takes is for the world to let him down and for him to turn around and the world won't help him anymore. There's a thing here, isn't there? There's an accidental, unwitting link with our last podcast in this series, The Sitcom Club, because last time we were talking about Girls About Town. Isn't Brian somewhat yes. similar to our two female leads in Girls About Town? He's a bit sort of... Okay, well, so the, my partner yeah, the, has got the girls are slightly out, behind. He's a bit, he's but, sort of wondering where he is, and he's a bit lost and thinking, you know, what, what what am I doing here? Well, here's the thing: he knew where he was, and all it took for for that accident, all it took was that accident to take everything away from him. He was the husbands in Girls About Town. The girls are thinking, yeah, what am I getting out of life? His wife is that turned monstrous. Me, what am I getting out of life? What am I doing? And, and she pu she puts her her view on top of everybody else's view. So she has this thing that she has some fascination for strange fruits. I don't know what does she... I, I know there was a line when I saw it for the first time, it stuck in my head where her punishment for the child, there's a child involved in this, gosh, how tragic, is that uh, if she doesn't behave, she won't get any pomegranate after tea, which I... I I didn't think in these terms, but it did just like, wow, that's 
my little infant brain is thinking that's middle class isn't it <laughs> we're back to that uh pouring jug for the orange squash all over again <laughs> yes yes so yeah there's a, there's a link between girls about girls about town they're just questioning they just want a little bit more whereas the the wife in lame duck she's had it and now she she's she still wants everything the, the world is geared around her and insert things about you know the generation that really benefited from the welfare state was the generation that voted to get rid of it underline that in your textbooks okay tell us about tommy tommy's a pyromaniac but he's reformed yes although is he i mean he is 80 percent, but he's still hmm, one eye on the the flickering flame no no i think he's he's reason no oh yeah he's he's deeply fascinated by him Captain Cold was that his name? There was a Flash villain. There was a Flash villain who I think. Oh no, there was. No, I'm not thinking of Captain Cold the other way. <laughs> See, if if it was Batman villains, I'd be I'd be on more secure ground. But his name's gone. I think there was there was a Flash villain who was all about cold, and I think there was a Flash villain who was all about heat. And it was something like he got locked in a meat freezer as a child by accident for half a day, and ever since then he was always oh never warm enough, and. There's something about that in Tom. He's got he's got this obsession, not just with flames, but with heat, with warmth. So he's always wearing a, a heavy greatcoat and a scarf, which is red and yellow to give that sense. And of course, he's got bright red hair, not dyed red hair. He's, he's got natural red hair. And that's, well, that's the beginning of this this whole thing. So Brian has been in his semi-detached suburban Mr. Drake lifestyle. And now he's found that the only people who are willing to help him when that lifestyle lets him down are oddballs and outsiders. Because his initial thing thing is he's going to become a hermit. He's going to cut himself entirely off from society. Which, isn't that something Reggie Perrin wants as well? Yes, I think the similarities with Reggie. Yeah, I mean, because he does, he does sort of attract similar, uh, how would you put it, similar personality types when he starts his commune yeah so as brian is now cut loose in society i think he's finding there are more odd people in the world and it's the odd people who are mostly willing to help him it's almost as if brian just not 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 in any prejudicial kind of way but it's just that brian hasn't really had exposure to a lot of the outside world it seems that his world has been extremely structured and maybe, like you say, it's a pity we didn't see a little bit more of Brian's office life and home life because the chances are that he didn't really come into contact with a lot of interesting people in his everyday life. Yeah, Richie Perrin's world is the odd people are in in the business world. The, his day job is a bizarre place where people go, great, super, and have, I didn't get where I am today. Everybody's got a catchphrase. They're all locked into these bizarre little patterns of behavior. I imagine in Brian's world, it's just boring. Hello. Oh, these are those numbers I meant to have ready by Thursday. Okay, thank you. Hold all my calls, Deborah. That's it. One interesting line. So he goes back to his house to pick up his stuff, all that's left of his belongings. He's got to take him away, become a hermit. He's bought himself a denim outfit. He's a denim rebel, and of course, it just doesn't work. It, 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 does does he have creases in the jeans? I'm trying to remember. <laughs> I, yeah, I get the impression he probably would put them in a Corby trouser press if one it, was readily yes, available. Yes, it, it it doesn't work, but it's some sort of sign. It's like, hey, I'm I'm, I'm rebelling. 
That's what rebels do, right? They wear a lot of denim. But he has a brief exchange with his daughter, and his daughter wants to play a game, and it's just not the time. He's he's obviously no longer welcome in the home. And she says, you always played games. That's just a little bit of characterization that maybe Brian was, if if nothing else, he was a good father. His wife and his wife's new men, they just regard him as kind of a joke, but his daughter wants to play with him. His daughter still loves him. It's interesting that you mentioned Dear John earlier because I could definitely see Ralph Bates in this role. And yes. Similar to Dear John, at some point you want to just sort of get Brian by the lapels and just give him a bloody good shake and say to him, look, okay, I realise you've been dealt a bad hand, but don't be so wet. And the person who's going to do that in this case is going to be Angie. And Angie turns up in episode two. In my notes, I have looking for love in all the wrong places. Angie's about the closest I think we get to a real person. She does have a character tick, which is basically, I used to live with a guy who, a little bit like Paul in Ever Decreasing Circles, I made to mine. Whatever the topic, she seems to have lived with somebody who knew that, did that, was part of that. And of course, she knows an estate agent. Hey, Reggie Perrinlink, of course, it's John Horsley. Doc Morrissey himself plays the drunken estate agent. But again, so now we're getting out into this other world and every character's an oddball. So he, he wants to find a new place to live. Angie knows an estate agent, but he's a drunken estate agent at a, some sort of a local fair in the beer tent getting absolutely paralytic. We don't really see any normal characters once... Once Brian gets out of the hospital and leaves his house, that's it. The world is always going to be full of oddballs. And the odder the ball, the more likely they are to cling to Brian and his world. And, uh, okay, I, I'm making a terrible confession. I've never actually read the Canterbury Tales. So I just put Canterbury Tales question mark because it's like it's a bunch of it's a bunch of distinct character types taking a journey together. And that's why this is such a slow burn as well. It takes nearly the entire series for the entire cast to be assembled. That is something that really fascinates me because it's something that you just, you really don't get that. It's unusual even to have characters introduced into a series mid-run, mid-series, or leave mid-series. One example is Miss Jones departing Rising Damp in the middle of series two. But it's an oddity. It doesn't really happen. Sometimes when it does, you're sort of intrigued. What was, what was the deal? Was this like to do with an actor's availability or something like that? I mean, you get obviously you get huge cast changes between series, but not in the course of a, a single series. But it's it's obviously that's the way that this is built because he's going to he's going to attract these people as time goes on. And I thought that you were going to have a wee segue there because when you said about he's he's like an odd ball uh, that that attracts people. Yes, it did pop into my head. Yeah. Yes. I actually quite like the idea of traveling around the world on a huge inflatable ball but there are practicalities involved with this as we rapidly discover punctures being the main one tony milan's character in some ways is the furthest from being a a real person he's a postman who's obsessed with breaking a world record and the thing he's chosen is to try and go around the world on an inflatable ball and he's never got very far oh i mean one thing we said earlier this is a serial it's not a series at least for the first series it's a sitcom serial it has a different opening title sequence every episode because you have to catch up on what's been happening. You can't just miss a week because if you miss a week, you miss a new character introduction. 
And so every episode has a little sort of precy of, like, this is the new person they've met. So when we get the the core group, so by this point we've got Brian, we've got Angie, Morris, who is chap with the inflatable ball, and we've got Tommy, the pyromaniac. We've got our core foursome. And it's only after then that we've got that established, and he's also acquired quite a bit of livestock as well. Then we get Brian Murphy coming in. Brian Murphy's character is actually... Uh, I would say that his character is a bit more realistic than it could have been in different hands. In different hands, this could have been a sort of comedy subcluso type detective character who feels oddly out of place. But actually, Ansel, again, he's he's got his own foibles and he's just as vulnerable as the rest, even though he, he'd like to sort of make out that he is an ace sleuth. Well, Brian Murphy's ex John Littlewood, isn't he? Mm. That yeah. whole looking at the people who make it big in British sitcoms, a lot of people with a lot of high quality pedigree, not only in the theatre, but also in sort of, you know, people's theatre, experimental theatre, gutsy theatre. It's not just Harry H. Corbett. There are actually a lot of Harry H. Corbett's in disguise, if you know what I mean. Like, you know, again, Youth of Joy, she was part of that. So it shouldn't be surprising. And I, you know what? I give. I'm not saying you're not surprised. You know this. You, you, I don't, you don't have to tell you all this, but there you go. It's a good example. Brian Murphy's given a broad sitcom character, and yet he can ground it. Maybe he really did sit and have a really good think. Maybe it's just that he'd been doing it for so long he could just do it by instinct. But it's one of the features of British sitcom that some of the changes made to theatre in the middle of the 20th century actually kind of have their echoes in the later sitcoms. I was just going to go off on a tangent there, but it's a bit of a dead end because I don't really have an answer to it. But I was just sort of thinking that, is that something that we're missing today, do you think? I'm thinking maybe maybe more so rep theatre. Yes, there's that too, I suppose. Yeah, just in, in terms of the, just the, the sheer breadth of, of work that an actor will have to their name even before yeah, they well, even get to the screen. Is our media just all made by a self-selecting elite for a self-selecting elite? And all the groundlings like to pre- pretend that they're part of it too. But I noticed something there, by the way. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to write a blog post. I noticed a packet of cornflakes in the background. That means that Jeff is going to explode. Big tick. I'm terribly sour, aren't I, about the way people consume media? But I think I'll become a hermit. Are you, are you allowed to become a hermit in the internet age? That's true. Brian Murphy's different, although he's he's been sicked onto he's been sicked onto the the crew, the team, the mob, whatever they are. He's been sent by Brian's ex wife to spy on him, and there's that possibility that he might just come and go. But I think it's kind of a foregone conclusion. He's he's a hypochondriac. He's always got a fixed inhaler up his nose. It's like well, he's weird. And we know what happens to weird people in lame ducks. You say he's weird. If they're but sufficiently he's... weird, they're going to end up as part of the uh, community. You say he's weird, but he's always carrying around this hand sanitizer. And, um, well, some <laughs> 36 years on, <laughs> he's very much a trendsetter. So, Harvest Festival. See, that's where it really gets odd. So far, we've if, if you can just kind of roll with it, we've just had this... Is the word picaresque right? In in what sense? 
I, I forgot to look it up. Is this a picaresque story? Is this a picaresque narrative? Do you mean picturesque? Just look it up for me. Not, no, picaresque. Eh. <laughs> well, I left my tablet over Hang on, there. Let, let me, let me just get up partway through the podcast and subtly, say, oh, just bear with I'm going to subtly type this in without anybody realising that I'm doing it. Whilst, whilst P-I-C-A-R. Hang on. What I'm thinking is picaresque. Is that really just one character going through all these... Uh, strange set pieces, or can a picaresque narrative be about multiple picaresque, characters? A picaresque novel is the genre of prose fiction that depicts the adventures of a roguish but appealing hero of a low social class who lives. Oh, I'm totally wrong. Then he lives by his wits in a corrupt society. Ho 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 ho! Ah, oh, right. I, I was thinking picaresque just meant you know, set pieces. Well, shows what I know. But so far, it's been Brian. Brian is. Outcast by society, but Brian meets Tom. Brian and Tom decide that society has been unfair to them and they're going to go and do things together. And they bump into Angie. Angie has more life experience. Angie seems to know a little bit of everything. In a lesser show, Angie would just be a deus ex machina because she just knows everything. But it actually works as a characterization beat. I used to live with a fella. So it gives her the knowledge, but it also gives that sense, as I said earlier, looking for love in all the wrong places. And then they meet Morris, who's a complete outsider. His only characteristic is this obsession with making a name for himself. He just wants to break a world record. That's it. That's, he just wants to have something that he can look to and say, I did that. Then a character is sent by the supposedly normal characters in suburbia to spy on him, but... He suddenly finds he's drawn into the orbit of the gang. And then we get the Harvest Festival episode. There's almost a theme here, isn't there? That maybe that the city is full of normies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's the countryside that's full of oddballs. So there's, there's a woman who's kind of lady of the manor. Mrs. Kelly. And she has grand plans, and she's kind of... She's not really an antagonist, but it, she is loud and selfish and posh. And she's having a harvest festival. She's interested in Brian. She doesn't really like any of Brian's friends, but she'd like Brian to be present. And so when they, co when they come to the house, we then have Ballard Barkley. <laughs> and it, Ballard Barkley's presence is really kind of surreal. Uh, she... She's incredibly mean to him. And every time she's mean, he goes, Fine, woman. <laughs> and there's some promise of baked Alaska that <laughs> means the world to him. <laughs> it's just, we were saying earlier, you know, Morris just has one characteristic, but it's recognizable. He's like characteristics that aren't hung on anything, <laughs> they're like floating in midair. There's no. It's like the strands of a maypole, but there's no maypole, it's just the ribbons. Nothing's holding up the ribbons, but the ribbons are moving. Fine woman. <laughs> she comes down the stairs, happy harvest home. What? Is that a thing? Do people say that? She has that character who's like a, some sort of minstrel in his tights. Uh, is he playing a lute or a lyre or just a regular guitar? You're, you're, ask, you're asking me who doesn't even understand what bass guitars are for. They're for the bass line. Yep. I still don't really understand. So John Deacon isn't just standing there with his hands in his pockets going, I really seem to have taken a wrong turning in life. <laughs> 
she has, in some ways, I don't know, is she a mirror image of Brian, a distorted mirror image? Brian is cooperative. In some ways, Brian actually needs all the other people. She has her own surreal community of oddballs, but she's in charge of them all. She's interested in status. Well, she has status, and she's interested in displaying that status. So anyway, she's going to have a lovely harvest festival, and the gang get involved, and it all goes bonkers. and people get pushed in the river if it sounds like i'm doing a bit you really have to see some of this for yourself demand of brit box we want <laughs> lame ducks and that's just the first series no this is the thing because in the second series it's well i mean how, how, could, how could you put it literally the, the the premise is blown up it's destroyed you know what you know what this reminded me of the good place Oh yes, 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 yes. Because I remember when we were watching the Good Place, you were you were at pains to 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 point out I must not peek at season two before I finish season one. <laughs> it's like season one had no status quo. Okay, so you know every every episode passes. We're not returning to. We're actually building on a state. We're actually making a situation. The characters are in search of a situation. And then it ends and we kind of have the situation. So it's, all right, okay, so season two is going to be them in the old rotten farmhouse having crazy adventures. You'd think so. No spoilers, but that kind of doesn't happen. I think they were okay to give slight spoilers as to the surroundings of series two because we do have well, series two of... The setting kind of doesn't matter. So it is them working together in a setting, but it, it hasn't evolved the way you might think it was going to evolve. Series two is where Gary and I really parted <laughs> on our opinion. Gary has an objection to series two. Okay, so I suppose this is a mild spoiler. In series two, it is established that ghosts oh. are real. Right, okay. Not right. only are ghosts real... But the ghost becomes central to the plot of one of the episodes. The entire resolution. We don't. We don't see the ghost. It's. We don't have Christopher Stanley forth <laughs> wandering around. We just. We're aware of the ghost as a presence, but we never see or hear him. And yet, uh, one of the episodes centers on the ghost get, getting something, and that changing the situation now i was fine with this because you know we've, we've been through so much we've been through the happy harvest home we've been through the men in tights falls in the river mm -hmm. we've been there speaking of which the river hey. people inside inside a sort of meant to be functional building discovering things about themselves There's a little parallel there but gary had an objection okay well now you see, because you, you you reeled off a list of things which happened previously in series one and two, as if to strengthen your argument. But the thing is that all of those things could happen in real life. There was nothing at all in any episode up to this point that was uh, unbelievable. So okay, outlandish, yes, and, and improbable, yeah, but not actually defying the laws of the universe suddenly introducing an element of the supernatural into that environment when you've established over several episodes that we're actually in the real world here. I had a bit of an issue with that because to me that was like, 
I don't know, just just think of any. It's, it's like, okay, what if there was an episode of Cheers where, you know, they're going on about how they feel that the bar's haunted or something like that, and then it turns out that it is. That, that, well, that, that would be the point. No, the typical, th- the typical thing in a sitcom, a really bog-standard trope would be, oh, the place, the situation, the house, the thing is haunted. Oh, let's spend an entire episode doing funny things that revolve around this situation. Hang on a minute. <laughs> no, it wasn't. I just left this um, strobe light switched on. <laughs> and then they switch off the strobe light and it's like, uh, oh, okay, yeah, the house isn't haunted. And they all leave and then we just see the empty building and then we see a mug pick itself up and put itself on the mug tree. It's Oh, or was it? Maybe. That's the bog standard thing. Here's the rational explanation. Right, okay. All the characters clear. Here for you, the viewer, is the suggestion that the place really is haunted. That's the standard way of doing it. And at one point it appears that that's what this is doing. But then it's going, no, the ghost wants things. (laughs) The ghost does things for a reason. But I don't have any problem with that. Because this, it's not like it's, it comes in to solve something. It's not like if you were watching a murder mystery and it's like, well, how, you know, it's a perfect locked room mystery. He's been shot through the right temple. Now, we know it can't have been suicide because he doesn't have any arms, but there's no gun anywhere in the room and the room was completely locked. And Inspector McGinley says, hmm, oh, it was a ghost. And the ghost comes and goes, it's a fair cop. That's, that's bad. <laughs> that's not playing by the rules. They've led you to believe certain rules are in play. But nothing, nothing in this depends on it being the real world. It's just like, right, okay, are we, do, do we all know what's happening? Well, I've intro- here's another element. This is another element from an entirely different mode of storytelling, but I've it's been introduced properly. Mm. And I think that's fine. <laughs> Gary, I'm going to have to get you to watch Gangsters by Philip yeah, Martin. You've first, you've yeah, this, first, yeah. without spoiling, first series of Gangsters, kind of hard-nosed thing about gangsters in Birmingham. And the feeling is, is that maybe people said to Philip Martin, God, that was, that was re- I love the realism of it. And Philip Martin appears to go, how dare you? That's, that's not realism. I made it all up. I'll show you. Series two, not quite so, uh, doesn't quite lean into heavily on the realism. That's that's as much as I'll say. Uh, and so that's fine. This, th- You know what? This is all stuff made up by Philip Hammond. It's all just stuff that came out of his head. And if he wants to bring in another element, you might say, well, it doesn't, you know, this new element doesn't work for me. It's a bit jarring, but it's okay for him to bring it in as long as he's not breaking a storytelling rule by doing it. He's not using it as a fake solution. It's just saying, oh, by the way, right, well, you know, uh, it's a postman who's, who wants to break a world record. There's, I mean, uh, we want, we're nearly towards the end of this, so we're not going to go episode by episode, but there's the bizarre uh, round-the-world ballroom dancer or... Competition mm. ballroom yes. dancer. Yeah. There's the pyromaniac. There's the woman who's looking for love in all the wrong places. And now there's the ghost. But so I, I think mm, yeah, it, mm, it's it's not breaking the rules. It's saying okay, let's let's all sit down, changing the rules. Okay, changing the rules. So from now on, be aware of this change in the rules. I, I just I just have an issue 
that if everything up until a certain point, I don't mean like in the first 10 minutes of something, obviously. I mean, over several episodes, and even actually, as it happens, into like another series of something, if you've established that we are actually operating in the real world, however much we're in the sort of, you know, the outer limits of it, then to then suddenly introduce something like that, I just... I don't think it... No, but he hasn't... Basically, it's not like right up until that point it's been very clear there were no such thing as ghosts. No ghosts. Ghosts are not a real thing. Just get that out of your mind. Oh, actually, no, there are ghosts. It's just like, oh, yeah, there are ghosts. I I haven't mentioned that before, but by the way, there are ghosts. Please adjust your perception of the reality of this world. It's it's fine. It's, you know, it's, it's all... This is an imaginary story, aren't they all? It's... Alan Moore once wrote. Ah, Tilt's not getting it, ladies and gentlemen. Why is Tilt not no, getting it? No, I am this? getting it. No, I'm getting it. It's just that I'm... It's not like... It's not like he set up the rules saying there are no ghosts. You just assumed there were no ghosts because this appeared to be set in the real world. And then it's like, actually, there are ghosts. But it does... That, the, that ghost doesn't destroy anything we've known before. It doesn't fly in the face of any of the previous stuff. It's not like... right. If there's an episode where Brian says, I've never been in hospital ever in my life, I wonder why. You go, Whoa, hang on! <laughs> the first ever episode! You've broken... You've broken the reality. All I'm saying is that Gary Sparrow is allowed to walk down Duckett's Passage and back through time because he does that in episode one. Rodney Trotter in a series five, only fools and horses does not have the same privilege. He can, as long as it doesn't, as as far as I'm, you, you can sort of say, oh, you, you pushed it too far now. Now it's just silly. You shouldn't have done that. But it's not a breach of the rules unless everything we've known before has kind of depended on that kind of thing not happening. Basically, if there's like, right, there's no such thing as vampires and then Dracula turns up. It's like you've you've really you better have a really good explanation for what's happening here. Well, now here's the thing: I wasn't quite as hooked on this show as I think you were. I think you I think you really enjoyed Lame Ducks, didn't you? Yes, I really did. And yet, I didn't have it. wasn't Lauren disorder or anything like that. It wasn't like oh, get this off my screen. It wasn't. It wasn't like that. It was. I don't know. I just I found it. I found it enjoyable for what it was, and it's nice to see something that looks and feels like an ordinary sitcom but is a little bit different so like we're saying with steve before if this was made a little bit later on it probably would have been single camera no audience but i quite like the fact that it's three walls and an audience and yet there's still bits and pieces in here which are it makes the strangeness a little bit stranger yeah yeah well it's nice to be back isn't it because we've been away too. Are we though? We've, Are we back? Well, we were back last time. No, no, no. So yes, indeed. And also, by the way, when you get to the end of this cast, if you're interested in more listening, you know how I always say, you know, there's loads of podcasts out there and what have you, and you nab them all and all that kind of thing. Now, Podnose is a great place. It's got tons of podcasts and what have you. Lovely stuff. iTunes, of course. There's there's all manner of things out there. But just on this one occasion, I'm going to beg your indulgence and I'm going to suggest that you pay a visit to thesitcomclub.com. Why, you may ask. Because is it the now? It is the. Very well spotted, Columbo. Yes, indeed. 
It is the sitcomclub.com, which always should have been in the first place, and that was my oversight in 2013. But if you go to the sitcomclub.com, you will find that the website, as was, has had a bit of a makeover. And you'll find every single podcast that we've ear done on the sitcom club on there. And you can download now. You can download, exactly. So in the meantime, if you've got anything for us, you can tweet us at the sitcom club. You can search for The Sitcom Club on Facebook. That's been fixed now, by the way. The Sitcom Club on Facebook is actually The Sitcom Club. And Jaffa Cakes for Proust will shortly have its own presence on Facebook by itself and everything. Any road up. In the meantime, thank you very much indeed for listening. Tilt, who the hell have you been? I have been Tilt. I've been Gary. Huge thank you indeed to Steve for joining us earlier. Make sure you follow him on all the social media bits and pieces that he was telling you about earlier on and we will be back promise at some point in the future with another edition of the sitcom club